there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of forward-thinking investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion-dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors. Today, we're interviewing Sheil Manat, who's a general partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures. Welcome to the show. How's it going, Sheil? Great. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on and learn more about kind of your path into venture and kind of how you think about markets and founders. I think to, to start, um, we'd love to kind of hear the kind of the classic question of how did you break into venture and kind of tell me about that path from going um, from kind of outside into VC into VC. Yeah, like a lot of people, my path was pretty non-traditional. Um, I'd say like there's no like standard path. You do this, then you do this, then you do this, and you're a venture capitalist. Um, my path was a meandering one. Um, I made software after undergrad, um, software for hospitals. Then I got into management consulting. When I was a management consultant, a buddy of mine wanted to leave and start a, a company. And so we did we started a payments company uh, over a decade ago. That company got acquired in 2012. And then I ended up starting another company that got acquired in 2015. And one of my investors asked me to join them as, an, as a VC. So I did that, um, started a fund under their umbrella um, called 500 FinTech. And then about a year ago, decided to start my own fund and started this fund uh, called Better Tomorrow Ventures uh, with my partner, Jake. So well, one, congrats on starting a fund. That, that, that's awesome. That's very exciting. I kind of want to dive into how you thought about, like how you thought about some core decisions when starting Better Tomorrow Ventures. So I feel like one of the big things that that you kind of have to decide when you start a fund that is like, is a couple of things. That's like, you know, what, what stage are you investing in? And like, how, like how many checks or like ultimately like port, portfolio construction, I guess, like when you reach out to LPs, knowing how much to raise, how did you make these decisions? how do you know which types of founders you want to invest? Sorry, which stage companies you want to invest in and kind of how do you get all these details put together before you decided to go out and like raise a fund and start the firm? Yeah. So it's a great question. So, I think let's let's start with 
portfolio construction. I am of the belief that, you know, within a certain reason, more portfolios, within a certain range, more, more companies are better than fewer at the seed stage. When there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, you really need to hit a couple of home runs in every fund. And your chances of doing that obviously improve if you have more investments. And so we plan to invest in 30 companies from this fund. And that felt like a size that was both manageable and yet got us enough at bats to make sure that we had a couple home runs. Um, we, and our fund size sort of reflects that. Our fund is $75 million. We, um, you know, we invest up to a million and a half dollars per, per, uh, per check in, in first checks. And then we can follow on with, with uh, half of the capitals saved for follow on. So we'll do 30 checks of, call it an average of, of 1.25 million bucks. And then, um, you know, that gets you to 37 and a half million bucks. And then half of the capital then is for follow-ons. Um, we feel like that's, that's a number that felt good to us. It also leaves us, you know, if we end up with just being two people, um, it leaves us each with 15 companies, which is a lot, but we feel like a good amount to manage. Um, and then your, your second question was, or was about investing at the seed stage. So we, we only invest at seed stage or our first checks are only at seed stage. And that's because that's what we love. We love helping founders at the earlier stages of their business. And thinking through strategic problems at this stage is more fun in our opinion. Um, so that's been, um, that's been our MO. And so we haven't really even thought about being a later stage fund. It's just, we enjoy the early stages so much that I don't think we would want to uh, invest at, at later stages. Yeah, that's one of my... Um guess thesis or thesis is from my first podcast um forward thinking founders is that like i'd rather talk to you know founders that are really early stage all day because i think it's like yeah it's just like more interesting stuff you know different types of problems um i'm curious for you though one of the downsides of seed that you, you alluded to is that there's a lot of a lot can happen there's a lot of risk which is why you have to put down a lot of bets so i'm curious for you yeah. when looking at um i guess opportunities what are some areas of opportunities or deals that like are more interesting interesting to you than others what i mean by this is do you like put more weight on market founders execution like revenue attraction how do you kind of evaluate when a deal plops on your plops on your desk um when i'm sure you're getting a lot of deals plopping on your desk what, what lens do you look through when deciding whether to like dive in a little more or you're not um or things like that yeah um great question i think a lot of people have differing opinions on this um I feel very strongly that the most important thing at the seed stage that you underwrite to is a team. Um, everything else can change. Uh, you know, very often the product changes, the market that they're going after changes, but it's very rare that in the first few years, 
the team, the founding team changes drastically. So what we're betting on is a team's ability to execute. And so that, that more than anything else is what's most important. And of course, if you look at many of the successful companies of today, they all started out as something very different than what they are. So that, that I think um, helps prove my point. Definitely. Um, I, I, one of my favorite, like kind of, I guess, narratives um, in this reign is I remember the Mark Andreessen email that was made like when Slack IPO'd the email about Slack, when like store Butterfield was like, Oh, like we're, we're not doing this. We're doing this. And Mark was like, Oh, like he didn't say this literally, but he ultimately was like, Oh, like that was a good shot, you know, just like, you know, but because he bet on store, you know, store obviously, you know, turned it around and built Slack. So I, I, t- I totally agree with that. Do you, do you have markets? Um, so, so your founder kind of, you look at founders um, as a filter, which is very, which is very um, obviously useful. Do you, do you have any markets that you're genuinely like interested in more than others? Um, or are you more like a generalist? And also like when you were deciding to start this fund, how do you decide how to answer that question? Like whether to focus on certain markets versus just being open to whatever comes in. How do you think about that? So we only invest in FinTech and that has been the case throughout. Um, and it's interesting because now FinTech is very much topic du jour, it's you know, the hot place to be. It's really funny because when we, you know, even a year and a half ago, when we, funny, like last summer, we started to talk to some LPs about doing this fund. And they literally said, why would you choose FinTech? FinTech's washed up. Like, and it's comical to think about now, given how hot the space is today. But, uh, people literally told us like, there's not, not much innovation yet to be like that you can have in, in FinTech. And I think that's absolutely crazy. Um, so for us, it's a function of um, both myself and Jake have started companies in the FinTech space and feel like we know and love this space. So that's, it's what makes sense to us. And you need to like educate me on something then. So there's this like, jo- it's joke, but it's like not a joke that, you know, at the end of the day, every company will end up being like a bank. Um, and it kind of like, as and I heard this, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and it kind of like, see, it's, see, that seems more likely, you know, all these different companies spinning up, like, you know, FinTech products um, when they originally weren't FinTech. Can you kind of explain to me, um, if you even know the answer, like why is FinTech popping so much right now? And why does it seem like every company wants to be a bank or have an investment, you know, arm? Um, Because I don't, do you know the source for all of this? Well, it has gotten a lot easier to start to build banking products into your product. Um, There are companies that'll let you embed financial products into your non-FinTech company, like, our portfolio company unit, um, they allow you to embed debit products into your into your app. And so if you are a, um, let's say you're a, a business that helps small businesses run their business better, and you're the product that the small business is logging into every day, kind of all day, how they operate their businesses through that, then there are 
a bunch of financial things that the that the business owner is doing in your product. So why shouldn't they do all of their financial stuff in your product? And if they're going to do all the financial stuff in your product, you might as well own more of the relationship and actually be the quote unquote bank account for that person. Now, when I say quote unquote, that means what I'm suggesting is you don't have to actually be the bank account for that person because um, you know you don't want to actually go through the regulatory uh, stuff that entails becoming a bank account, but you can um, become the consumer's front end to the bank. And yeah, that, that's very helpful to think about. And you're right. Like it has, I've inter- actually interviewed a couple of products um, or a couple of founders um, earlier in the podcast that like we're building some of this infrastructure. So that doesn't make sense. What other opportunities do you see um, in FinTech um, like that might be more on the merging side? And specifically, one thing I'm like kind of interested in is we all know, or maybe we all don't know, but right now, like Bitcoin's having another like surge and there, there's all the Bitcoin fans that are kind of out chatting about, you know, decentralized things with blockchain. Is this like kind of on your investment radar yet? Is it a little too far out? How do you kind of think about cryptocurrency, blockchain, distributed ledgers like in, in your investment thesis? Yeah, so we as a fund decided not to prioritize blockchain investments. Um, there are some companies that may have blockchain as a part of what they do, but are not blockchain companies, so to speak. Um, and we'll invest in those, or we could invest in those. But um, we feel like a lot of blockchain stuff is being built for other blockchain users right now, not necessarily for every consumer. And so for that reason, and because there's so many experts who only invest in crypto, we feel like it doesn't make sense for us to be in that space. Do you, so I, I feel like based on my conversations, like that's a popular feeling among a lot of VCs. And I think it's extremely warranted. I guess like, is there a, what would have to happen? Like obviously blockchain and Bitcoin, like it's not, I don't think it's going away. So at some point it might be more relevant. Are there things that the investor asset class or angel investors are kind of waiting for in order to, for it to seem more viable of an investment, like, like pretty much outside of just the blockchain ecosystem? Um, or is this one of these things where you don't even spend much time thinking about it? And once you know, you just kind of know, and then you'll kind of take a look at the industry. Like how do you parse that out as a VC? Yeah, I would say we haven't been spending that much time in it. Um, we are actually personally invested in Bitcoin. And actually that, you know, that has actually been the best investment. Um, rather than any one company or protocol to invest in. So I think we'll probably continue down that path. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm just, I, I, something I like to do is like when, you know, someone talks about markets, they invest in, I'm always like, I'm, I'm a personally, like, I'm not an investor, but like I, through my podcast, I look at like through things through the lens of one. And I'm very intrigued to know like at what point does crypto blockchain become actually like a, like a thing that's investable. And I definitely don't think, it's, I don't think it's there yet at all. Um, I, I, I think yeah. I, I'm excited as a builder, like I'm on the founder side, like I like definitely see the potential for it, but even me, like I'm not going down that rabbit hole yet. Cause I think it is st- still a little too 
culty or like just too technologisty, like you know, um, and maybe in a couple of years it'll be easier for someone like me to leverage technology like that. Um, and then if if you know, if I'm targeting founders that are outside of, you know. Uh, the blockchain world, then great. Then like, that's a step function if a lot of founders are doing that, but I rest my point. So let's kind of talk about for the last couple, last couple of minutes, um, how you like what you look for in a founding team. So you focus, you you say you you care a lot about founders because that's the only thing that doesn't change. Um, What do you like in a founding team um, when you meet them? And uh, um, we'll start there. Actually, when you meet a founding team, what's optimal for you to know that um, this might be a, a winning team? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a bunch of things that I look for. The number one thing I look for is, is this somebody who has an amazing vision that will be able to attract people to that vision? And I say attract people to that vision, they need to attract customers, they need to attract future employees, and they need to attract future investors. So that's sort of like overarchingly, that's what really matters. Does this person have the ability to sell their vision and execute against it? But like in terms of what that means from a team perspective, um, I'd say like, you know, there's some execution capacity. Can they do the job? And then there's a skills composition. Are they the right team for the job? So like broadly, it's selling me the vision, but then more deeply, especially in FinTech, there's something around that having the expertise or domain knowledge to be able to execute on the plan. Um, and then I also think about the team dynamic. So are these folks that are gonna work together well? Um, are they authentic? Like, will they build a strong culture? Those sorts of things I think about a lot. And then, you know, what is the structure and how does the cap table look or are the right people incentivized to stay? And, you know, is this the leader, do I see this person leading a hundred plus person company? Um, Cause ultimately, you know, our successful companies end up being that way. So those are some of the things that I think about uh, pretty regularly. And so Right now, at least from my perspective, um, and I think mo- most VCs agree, people tweet about it a lot, that like the, the market, um, the fundraising market is like kind of, there's a lot of capital available for founders, um, and which means it's probably attracting more founders to enter the startup game, start startups, you know, try to build out their big visions and dreams. Um, I'm curious for you, has it, have you noticed like since you've started investing, although, you know, you just, you just recently started your firm, have you noticed an uptick in the amount of founders that are like asking for money reaching out to you because of this, you know, this environment that we're in? And if so, have you had to change like your day-to-day operation or filtering system, or is it kind of business as usual um, as the founder market grows and grows? Um, Has it affected you at all? Yeah. Um, Yeah, it does feel like there are a lot more companies than ever before. And there are a lot more companies chasing the same spaces than ever before. So it does does make us think about things a little bit differently. Um, It makes me, you know, it makes us have a lot more pause like before investing in anything because we now generally see three or four other companies doing the same thing at a 
around the same time. Um, so, and then in terms of how founders reach out to us, yeah, yeah, we just, there aren't enough hours in the day to meet with all the companies that want to meet with us. So we have to be pretty strict on filtering. And, you know, at some point we'll probably miss some great companies because we had to be strict at filtering at the outset, but it just is what it is. It's the name of the game. For sure. If, if only a startup could invent a, a ability for us to expand the amount of time we could spend on a day from 20, 24 hours to, to 50 hours, maybe we, maybe we could all get it done, but I don't, I don't know if it's possible. We'll see if someone else can figure it out. So, uh, yeah. to, Two, two more questions for you and then, then we'll, we'll call it a day. I appreciate your time. Um, so what is one thing that you wish more people knew about venture capital? You, you could be ta- uh, talking specifically to founders that are pitching you, LPs that you're pitching, even just, you know, anyone, you know, casual kind of bystanders of the industry. Um, what's something you feel like is, is uh, mystified that you want to demystify and help more people understand about venture? Yeah, sure. I think one thing that people, this is not true of founders or LPs, but one thing that's true of the population at large is they don't realize how much a venture is about being chosen. You know, it's the only asset class in the world where the asset chooses you. So anybody can say, oh, you know, I, uh, I also saw that Uber and Stripe were going to be you know, tens of billions of dollar companies, uh, I should be a venture capitalist. Well, yeah, just because you saw it doesn't mean you could have invested in it. You know, they only chose one company or one fund to lead their their series A. And that I think is something that most people just do not realize how important it is to, to be chosen. Um, and, you know, we're setting ourselves up to be a fund that both picks the right companies and then also gets chosen. And so far we've been doing a great job. I actually have one quick question on that because it's a, that's a super valuable point. Is there a, what, what, if someone, let's say wanted to break into VC, but they wanted to do it the right way, like, and the way that like that, that the way that might take a long time, but the effective way, how does, how do you build yourself up in a way that you become chosen? Uh, you're, you're one of these companies that top entrepreneurs want to pick is there a science there or is it i feel like it's just like it's a combination of many things but do you have a theory on how to be that 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 investor that is chosen by these founders you know it really varies by there's a lot of things a lot of factors at play some of it is brand some of it is just like how well you jive with the investor some of it is does their background suit you um so from our perspective what I think has helped us win is we are founders ourselves. So we have the empathy required um, to be, you know, to, to work with the founder. And then all we do is FinTech and that's all we've really done. And so we know more about the spaces that the founders are going into than many of the other folks out there. And that has been really valuable. Um, so I'd say that like, those are the two main selling points. And then, yeah. And then the other thing is for us, it's very easy for us to get our other founders, our previous founders on the, on the phone with anybody who's considering taking our money. And then, you know, they will hound them and say, you got to work with these guys. And that has been 
amazing for us. Yeah, it, I do feel like from my pattern matching, like you're positioning yourself in a perfect way. Like you're, you know, you have the experience, you're, you're niche in a certain market and you're like establishing yourself as like the, the, the firm in this specific vertical, which is exciting. Um, if someone's, you know, hears this and, the, and let's say they like, they like the conversation, they want to learn about you or more about your firm. How can someone reach out? Um, is there like a website or do you have an email list? Um, you know, social media, email, if someone wanted to like get to know more about you or your firm, or, you know, maybe like one of you as a potential investor, how, how, what path could they go down to kind of learn more about you? Yeah, probably, um, Twitter. Uh, is probably the easiest way. I'm at Pit Desi, P-I-T-D-E-S-I. It's a mouthful. Um, and then our website, there's not much on it at the moment. Uh, we're in progress of working through that, but the current website is, the website is btv.vc. And there's there's information about both of us on there. Then I actually have one last question and then we'll call it a day. So I, I myself am also an avid Twitter user. I feel like Twitter is a better LinkedIn than LinkedIn. Um, but I Agreed. usually, I usually tell the, the listeners this just on the, my other podcast, um, the forward thinking founders, that segment. Um, but for this, I'd love them to hear from you from like a VC, you said Twitter, why Twitter? Um, can you kind of educate them on like why it's important to be on Twitter if you're a founder or just someone that wants to be in tech? I don't think you need to be. I do think it can be useful and it can be useful because it helps people know what you're thinking about real time and people can understand whether they like your thoughts or not. And I think for me, I just try to be, you know, fully authentic. It's all I know how to do. And so that, probably attract some people and probably detract some people. Some people are probably like, this guy's crazy. I don't want to work with him. And that's fine. If, if they feel that way, then they, we probably wouldn't work well together. So um, I think it's just important to be authentic, to be your authentic self. And Twitter has, I found to be a really good way to do that. Yeah. I, as, as mentioned, um, Twitter, I, I, you know, she may not say you need to be on Twitter. I will tell you, I think if you're at least you're a founder, it is, I highly advise you to be on Twitter. That's where tech is these days. And you can meet all these awesome people, including myself, Sheil, and hundreds of other founders and investors. Well, cool. Sheil, is there any, any last thoughts or anything, um, you know, before we wrap it up, this has been super, super informative. I've learned a lot. Um, any last words? Are you ready to wrap it up? Let's wrap it. Cool. Well, exactly. thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, best of luck finding the next, you know, 10 dozen hundred unicorns with your, your, your future funds. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening to that podcast of Forward Thinking Investors live from the radio station in Forward Thinking City. What is Forward Thinking City? Forward Thinking City is the number one virtual community for people to break into tech and startups. We have a combination of AMAs with the, the best founders and investors out there. And we have educational sessions on how to fundraise for your startup and how to learn to build 
products with no code. And of course, we have tons of networking events, for example, open coffee hours and pitch club. Um, so you can get practice meeting other people and pitching your product in front of dozens, if not hundreds of other residents. For Thinking City is $20 a month. And in exchange, you get access to all of these founders, all of these potential future employees, these future investors, as well as the education that you need to take your startup to the next level. If you are trying to level up as a founder or an investor or a startup enthusiast, go to forwardthinking.city and we'll see you over there. Note some of events are free, so if you're just interested, if this piqued your interest, go to forwardthinking.city and RSVP to some events. And if you feel like it, sign up as a resident and I'll see you on the other side.